0: This story that we're going to consider this morning is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each one gives a very pertinent piece of information that uh, is uh, important in understanding what happened that day. And so I want to read a few verses from each of these uh, gospel stories. Luke chapter number 18, verse number 18. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, speaking of Jesus, saying... Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these Have I kept from my youth up? Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Well, who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time And in the world to come, life everlasting. Okay, now turn back with me and we'll read just a portion of what is recorded in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. Matthew's account of this story reads as follows. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, notice Jesus' question. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt... Not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And then one final place. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And when he was going forth into the way, there came one running. And kneeled to him. And asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying. And he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Luke chapter number 18 in your Bibles this morning. Imagine uh, coming up to somebody this week with the the um, true life card that you pick up this morning on your way out of the auditorium. And uh, praying uh, over that card and saying, you know God, I've got five of these cards this week. And Lord, I pray that you'll bring five people across my path this week that you want me to interact with about Jesus Christ. And, uh, praying that God would open up a door of opportunity. God would lay on your heart and God would use, uh, your getting out of your comfort zone and obeying God and sharing Christ with people that He brings across your path. And so you, you, you pray, you see somebody, you pull out the card and, uh, and you go up to a, a person and you say, excuse me, I've got a, uh, I've got a card that, uh, is advertising a a website on it called truelife.org and it's a website that has a, a, uh, just a lot of free little short videos that answer some of the most important questions that people ask about God. And, and imagine the person looks back to you and, and they say to you, I can't believe this. I've been wondering how I can go to heaven when I die. Could you help me find out how? I can know I'm going to heaven. And you thought, wow, now that is easy. That, that is the most amazing. Have you ever talked to a stranger and had that stranger look at you and say, I've been wondering how I can go to heaven when I die. Would you please show me how? Has that ever happened to you? Anybody here? One. Anybody else? Two. Three. Three people in the auditorium have had, four have had people that they've met that asked them that question. How did you respond? What did you say to them? Jesus Christ here is on the temple platform and someone sees him. I would assume that they knew who he was. This was at the end of Jesus' ministry. He had become quite a person of notoriety in Israel particularly in Jerusalem, and uh, and someone sees him, and they come running to him. They run up to him. They fall on their knees in front of him, and they look up to him, and they say, Good Master, what good thing can I do that I may have eternal life? Wow, what a question. You know, our text, this little episode, this little story in Luke chapter 18 begins in verse 18. And verse 18 ends with the words, inherit eternal life. And this portion, this story ends in verse number 30. We're not going to get there this morning, but that's where it's going to end, probably next week. But it ends in verse number 30 with the words, life Everlasting. This story is a story about eternal life. It's a story about a person who's not going to heaven, talking to the person who created heaven. Here we have a story that's saturated with the theme of everlasting life, of eternal life. We have the most amazing conversation. I mean, this guy would have to, would have to be the dream Seeker, not uh, not seeking dreams, but the dream, seeker of God. You know, you know, there was a time where the phrase seeker became real popular in evangelical churches. You know, we're a seeker-sensitive church. We're sensitive to the seekers. And, and that, that had a whole lot of stuff that went with it. But, but the, the idea was we, we're trying to find people who are seeking God, and we want to uh, bring them the message of the gospel. Seekers. Well, here is the most amazing seeker. I mean, this guy runs after Jesus, falls on his knees in front of Jesus, and says, What must I do to have eternal life? He was definitely a seeker of eternal life. And the conversation that they had is a very interesting conversation. You know, we're in a section of Luke's gospel where where we have been studying the stories of a number of people who Jesus talked to about eternal life. He had taught about his second coming and then immediately went into this chapter of talking about different people and the theme of eternal life in their lives. We have seen the, uh, the, uh, some stories about people who were going to be a part of the kingdom of God, and we've seen the stories of some people who were not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus telling the stories of these people, informing us of the work of world evangelism, of witnessing, of soul winning, of, of confronting people, of what people must do to be saved, of helping people come to Jesus Christ. And so this this story is an encounter with a person who's not going to heaven, but is seeking how he might go to heaven. And the conversation Jesus had with him. I mentioned and we read this account in three different places. In each account, God added a little tidbit of information that is very poignant when you read all three and compare them and, and get the get, saturate your mind with the fullness of this story. The the picture that God unfolds is a phenomenal story. And so this morning we're going to we're going to see how to handle a seeker the dream. The, the, the seeker of God, that, that would be our dream. To have the dream of having somebody come up to you and just saying, how can I go to heaven? That's a dream to anyone who wants to share the gospel with unsaved people. And so here, how did Jesus handle and how do we handle a seeker who is a dream opportunity? Well, how do you, how do you handle uh, one seeking Jesus? Let's consider the characters in this story, we're going to look at two characters in the story this morning and we'll leave the third uh, for another message Two two characters are involved in the story. And the first character is the seeker himself. We're immediately introduced to an amazing man. He does not fit the mold of all of Israel's spiritual leaders whom Jesus had dealt with so often in his ministry. This guy is in a class all by himself. This guy is an unusual individual. He is an amazing man as, as he comes and seeks how he might have eternal life. So here's a couple, here's some statements. Number one, statement number one, uh, who he was in this world. Who he was in this world. Our text says in verse number 18, And a certain ruler. He was a ruler. What does that mean? He was a ruler. Well, we know from John 3 that Nicodemus was a ruler in Israel. When we study the word ruler in the context of Israel and Israel's rulers, we're not talking about political rulers. Israel's political rulers were Roman. This is not a political ruler. This is a ruler of the Jewish people. He was... He could very well have been a member of the Sanhedrin, who would have been rulers in Israel. He, he, more likely than not, was a ruler of a synagogue. Each synagogue had a ruler of the synagogue. A synagogue was a, a place where Jewish people would gather, mostly outside of Jerusalem. People would gather at the synagogue for their weekly uh, worship and instruction and the reading of the, the word of God and, and, and all of that. And, and each synagogue had a ruler. So we could almost think of this guy kind of like a pastor, kind of like a spiritual leader, a, a spiritual uh, ruler of a segment of God's people. And, and, and so who, who was this uh, who was he in this world? He was a spiritual leader of some of God's people in Israel. Maybe a member of the Sanhedrin, more likely a ruler of a synagogue. Which means he had the respect of the people who had made him their spiritual leader or spiritual ruler. Here's the second statement. What he attained in this world. You know, the, the, all three of the synoptic gospels that tell this story talk about his wealth. Uh, Luke 18, verse 23, says he was very rich. Matthew 19, 22, and Mark 10, 22, says he had great possessions. What can we learn about this man? A spirit that has a lot of wealth, a very rich spiritual leader. You know, wealth in Israel was, was an accumulative wealth. Families... And leaders of families would be very wise in their use of the resources that God had allowed them to have. And they would pass that on to their children. And the inheritance and the building of family wealth was very much a part of the culture of Israel. Here's a man who had great possessions, which in all likelihood means that his forefathers had been very careful economically in the decisions they'd made in life. And there had been an accumulation of wealth, and this man was the one charged with maintaining that wealth to pass on to the next generation. So he's a man with great possessions, very wealthy, who will be expected by his family to be careful with the use of that wealth for the passing on to the next generation in his family line. He had the the strong belief of the Jewish people was also that the blessings of God and the curses of God were revealed by one's status in life. If you had great wealth, that was considered to be the blessing of God on your goodness. If you were poor, that was the curse of God on your sinfulness. This theology of wealth. And theology of health is not something new in our generation. The health and wealth Christianity. This goes way back through the Bible times all the way back to Job. You remember that Job's friends said, Job, the fact that you're sick and, and all this tragedy has happened in your life is proof of your sin. You need to confess your sin and, and God will remove all of these things. And, and this concept That wealth equals the blessings of God and a lack of wealth equals the sin in your life bringing God's judgment was a very strong uh, belief of the Jewish people. So this man, he has been placed in a position of spiritual responsibility. He is considered by his peers to be a man of great spirituality such that God has blessed him with great possessions. And so he is deemed by his peers as being a godly man, a spiritual man, a man of great leadership amongst the people of God as proven by his possession of great wealth. And so this man is is highly, highly respected by the people around him. Here's a third statement. Who was he in the world? He was a religious leader. What did he he attain in the world? Great wealth and uh, great possessions. Here's a third statement. How he felt about himself. How he viewed himself. Now this is where the particular nature of this individual just... Shines. He is so different than the other religious leaders that Jesus encountered. Jesus encountered so many religious leaders who because of their status in life, because of their position and how they were viewed by other people, they were filled with ego and pride. They saw themselves as superior. They saw themselves as having attained something the peons hadn't attained. And of all people, they will be in the kingdom of God because of their own righteousness and because of their own stature in their community. And Jesus dealt with those religious snobs often. And He condemned them as being lost on their way to hell because they had never come to see themselves in need Of God's grace and mercy. This man is different. How did this man feel about himself? Well, here's some statements. uh, Five little arrows. We notice his obedience to the law. When he confronted Jesus and said, Ask the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus Christ said, you know what the commandments are. And then Jesus named five of the Ten Commandments. He listed the five commandments. He, uh, five of the commandments. He said, "You know what the commandments are. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother." You know what the commandments are. You you want to know what you have to do to go to heaven. You know what the commandments are. And when you when you get beyond the the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, as Jesus did when he interpreted and explained the Ten Commandments. He said, you may never have committed adultery as a physical act, but if you've ever lusted, you are an adulterer. You have broken the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. You may have never pulled a trigger and killed somebody, but if you've ever hated somebody in your heart, you are a murderer. In your heart. Jesus went beyond the letter of the law to the inward condition of the heart that leads a person to commit an act that's contrary to the law of God. And Jesus said to this man, you know what the law is. You know what the commandments are. And Jesus rattled all five of them. And the young man looked to Jesus Christ in verse number 21. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus didn't contest that. Jesus didn't say, oh, come on, you know better than that. Jesus took it at face value. And Mark's gospel said that Jesus looked at him. He beheld him. Beholding him, Jesus loved him. You know the word that could best speak of of how this person saw himself? The word that comes to my mind is sincerity. Sincerity. He was sincere about what he said and how he lived his life. Jesus took his statement at face value. Here's a guy who from his youth, he has meticulously tried to always do the right thing. Here's a sincere young man who has all his life from his youth. He has been careful about what he did. And careful about what he didn't do. He sincerely tried to live according to what he read in his Bible. He was very sincere. I see something of his obedience to the law. I also see something about his desire to know God personally. Verse number 18 ends by saying... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wants something that he doesn't have. He wants eternal life. In spite of his religion. In spite of his life. Of trying to live an exceptional life. Never lying. Never dishonoring his parents. Being meticulous in his care of how he lived his life. In spite of all of his sincere efforts to be good, he knew something was missing. He knew that his law-keeping did not bring him into a personal relationship with his Creator. And so he comes to Jesus desiring to have something that he doesn't have. What he desires to have is eternal life. Now let me caution all of us to not think of eternal life as merely life that never ends. It's not speaking merely of the duration of life. It's talking of a kind of life, a quality of life, a life of a quality that will never end. And He knows He doesn't have that. And He personally wants what he doesn't have. You know, if eternal life is just a duration of living, just live the life that you're living now, but never die. Just go on and on and on and on and on and on. I don't know that that would be such a great thing. As a matter of fact, I think that might be a curse. If you couldn't die, and you just live the current life you're living... And could never die. I just, um, I just got back from a family reunion every year this time. Uh, mom's family, uh, my siblings, and their kids. Uh, we meet down in in Black Mountain, North Carolina, uh, for uh, a couple of days, and uh, and it's it's mom's reunion of her. Of her family, her kids, her grandkids, and her great grandkids. And so we were down there, and, and we, we made my, my two brothers, my sister, and I made an announcement to all of the family. As a matter of fact, we said we had, we had two announcements. We, had, we wanted them to put two events on their family calendars. We announced that we wanted them to mark down February 6, 2021 on their family calendars because that's the Saturday before mom's 90th birthday. And everyone is coming to Virginia on the Saturday before mom's 90th birthday to have a 90th birthday party for mom. Then I said, there's a second date. My brother actually made the announcement. He said, there's a second date. We want you to put on your calendar. Everyone put on your calendar the." The day, February 8th, 2031, because that's the Saturday before mom's 100th birthday party. And so everyone's coming to Virginia for mom's 100th birthday party on February 8th, 2031. I was talking to mom afterwards. She says, I don't want to be in this world till I'm hundred. <laughs> She said, her her specific phrase was, as bad as this world is, I don't want to live in this world till I'm 100. You know, if you could live and not die, that would be more of a curse than a blessing. You get older and weaker and more frail and more feeble and sicker, but you just can't die. That's not eternal life. That's not everlasting life. Everlasting life is a quality of life. It's a quality of life that is God-like. It's the life that God possesses. God is eternal. Everlasting life is not eternal life in the sense that it has no beginning. It's eternal or everlasting in the, fa- in the sense that it will it'll last into the future and have no end. We get to step into the quality of God's life. We get to possess God-like life. And this man knew he did not have that. He knew that in spite of all of his religion and all of his sincerity and all of his efforts to try to be good, he knew something was missing. He put the pieces of the puzzle together, but there was one piece that wasn't there, and he couldn't figure out how to get that last piece of the puzzle in place. What must I do? I'm missing something. I lack something. I'm without something. I'm not without religion. I've got religion out my ears. All my life I've kept the commandments. It's not the, the, the status of life. My community respects me. They made me the ruler in spiritual things in their lives. It's not a lack of possessions. I've got so much money, I can't, I don't have stuff to spend it on. I can't spend the money I've got. I've got everything but one thing and I'm lacking that one thing and I I know I'm lacking that one thing and I want to know God I want to enter into his life I want something real something lasting I want the character of the life of God that I can be in and experience I want what must I do to have God's life in this life What must I do to have Everlasting life. Something else about the way this man viewed himself. He was sincere in his religious goodness. He desired God's life that he didn't have. Here's a third thing, kind of close, but a little bit of uniqueness to it. He had a passion. It's not that he just, it would be nice to know. It's not, oh, well, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to know that. This man had a passion to know God. How do you know that? I know that because Mark's account says he comes running to Jesus. He sees Jesus. He comes running to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. He said, what do I have to do to have what I'm missing in life? To have the character of God, the life of God. What must I do that I haven't already done? This man was passionate. There were no pretensions of pride and ego. Here we see transparency, honesty, genuine passion, and he doesn't care about what everyone around him thinks of him. The pastor doesn't know if he's going to heaven. The pastor doesn't have a personal relationship with God? The pastor, I thought if anyone had their life together, this guy had his life together, but he doesn't. He says, I don't have my life together. I'm missing something. But he he could care less who heard him say it. He had a passion to meet Jesus Christ and find out how he could have the life of God in his life. Passionate. To know God personally. And then there's another one there. Another arrow there. His acknowledgement that he didn't know God. Again, in spite of his position and prestige, he acknowledges, I don't have this. And he asked the question, Matthew recorded, he asked the question, what lack I yet? What is it that I haven't done yet to bring me peace in my heart? you 've listed five of the Ten Commandments, and I tell you from the time I was a youth i 've not dishonored my parents from the time I was a youth, I did not steal from the time I was a youth i i didn 't lie to people I, I I did everything I could to be honest and transparent with people all my life i 've not hated people i have i have uh, uh, succeeded in in, in the battle of the mind over lust. He says, all my life in dealing with the issues of, of right and wrong, I've done my best to live right. What lack I yet? He didn't know God and he knew it. How can I find what's missing in my life? How can I have the peace that I long for? What a picture this guy's so different than all the other religious leaders that the Bible has told us about. No ego. No pride. No self-righteousness. No, I've got my life together and I'm going to be in the kingdom of God because I I don't know God. How can I have eternal life? And then one last arrow there. His seeking an answer to his desire. He came with the right subject. Asking the right question of the right person. His seeking of an answer. He sought help. And he sought it of the person he thought had the answer. He thought Jesus had the answer to the longing of his soul. So he went to the one who he thought had the answer. And he asked the right question of the right subject. I love this. He sought help. I'm seeing a sincere man. He sought help. There was no prodding. There was no coercing. There was no begging. There was not even any salesmanship. There was not Any external things to try to make it easier for the person to seek God. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. The music's going to play softly. While the music's playing softly and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me ask you a question. And then beg people to seek Jesus. Beg people to come to Jesus. There was none of that. There was no soft music. There was no begging. There was just a man, sincere to the depths of his heart, religious, good, wealthy, prestigious, and lost. And he knew he was lost. He knew he didn't have what he longed to have, that missing element in life, to have the life of God in me. Eternal life. And so he came. He is the perfect seeker. Anyone who's learned anything about soul winning would have said to this man, just bow your head and pray this prayer after me. I mean, we'd have him in the kingdom of God so fast he wouldn't know what hit him. How did Jesus deal with him? Let's look at the soul winner in the story. The seeker is the perfect seeker. Genuine Honest, hungry for God, coming with the right question of the right person, wanting to know how he can have eternal life. Let's look and see how Jesus handled this amazing, soul-winning opportunity. Verse number 19 of our text, chapter 18, verse number 19, Jesus asked him a question. He said, why do you call me good master? See, I'm drawn to two things here. You see a number one and a number two. A question and a statement. I'm drawn to a question and I'm drawn to a statement that Jesus made. This, you'll never learn this in Evangelism 101. This usually will not be in that admit you're, you're a sinner, confess Christ, and repeat these words after me. Jesus asked a question and he made a statement. And I'm drawn to these two. First of all, there's a question in verse number 19. He said, "Why did you call me good?" He, he had said he had said in verse 18, "Good Master." Now that's interesting. I, I was I was reading, and and this uh, one scholar noted that 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 intrigued him. "Good Master," and Jesus said, "Why did you call me good?" And so he researched Jewish literature. And in all of his research of Jewish literature, he could never find one time in any Jewish literature where anyone called a rabbi good teacher. They just called him teacher, translated here master. No one ever called a rabbi good teacher because the word good was used only of God. And so they never called a human teacher a Good teacher. Or here, good master. And Jesus asked him about that. You see, here's a question about identity. Do you know who I am? Was that a slip of the tongue? Or did you really mean to call me good teacher? Did did you just, just kind of slip? Or do you know who I am? Because when it comes to salvation, the identity of Jesus Christ is everything. He's not a created being like the Mormons teach. He's not some angel like many of the cults teach. Jesus is eternal God who came to rescue man from man's sinfulness. And so Jesus asked him a question. Do you really believe I'm God? Why did you call me good? There's none good save one. That is God. The only one who's a good teacher is God. Did you mean to call me that? Do you know who I am? Have you heard enough of my preaching and teaching? Have you come to the conclusion that I am God incarnate in human flesh? Have you come To wrestle with my identity of who I am and come to the conclusion that I am God who came to redeem mankind from their sin? Did you mean that you really believe that I am God? The question of identity, an intriguing question, interesting question about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is as God incarnate with no beginning or end rather than a created being. That, came, that was here on earth, or a good teacher in the sense of his moral goodness that people can follow his example like the Muslims teach, a prophet of God that can be followed but not God himself. So there's a question about identity. But notice then, and the thing that Jesus really went to seed on, that we'll, we'll, look, we'll finish up and then look at it again next week, A statement that was intended to destroy. A statement that was intended to destroy. Jesus Christ said in verse number 20, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. What was Jesus Christ telling this man? Jesus Christ knew this man was very much alive in his own spiritual understanding of who he was. He believed he was a law keeper who had carefully kept the law of God. He had a very high opinion of himself, not proud and egotistical, but genuine honesty. I've tried really hard. I have kept the law to the best of my ability from my youth up. And yet, grace means nothing to a person who has not been slain by the law. The Ten Commandments were never given To give us the ability to climb our way into heaven. The commandments were given for the purpose of causing us to fall on our face and say, What a miserable sinner I am. He must not come to Jesus seeing himself as almost good enough, just looking for that one little piece of the puzzle that's missing. Maybe Jesus can tweak my life and help me get that one last little thing in place so I can have peace in my heart. Jesus didn't tell him to believe. Jesus didn't tell him to pray a prayer to express faith in God. Jesus threw the law at him to kill him. To slay him. Jesus is not my coach that helps me tweak my life. Jesus is not a coach that helps me in self-improvement or adjust my flaws to give me a better life. Jesus is not drawn to my felt needs to help me have a better marriage or a more comfortable life. Jesus is not a coach, a life coach, to help me tweak my life. Jesus throws the law at him to kill him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really believe in Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of the figment of your imagination of what you think Jesus ought to be? Jesus threw the law at that guy. And then when the guy said, I've kept all those things, Jesus said, there's one other thing. It's called the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Take all those possessions you've got, liquefy them into cash, and give it away. How much do you love your car? How much you love your house? How much you love the money you got in the bank? What if you were this man and you brought, you've been brought up in church. You've been brought up as a religious person. You've been taught all your life, be a good person. It'll all work out in the end. You tried hard. You'd gone to Sunday school. You went to church. You lived a good life. You helped your neighbor. You mowed your neighbor's lawn. You cared about other people. You gave the United Way. You, you went to church on Sunday. You lived a good life. And all your life, you would lived a good life. But yeah, just in your heart, you just felt that there just something was missing. And so you went to Jesus and said, what is missing? And he said to you, I want you to give away your car, give away your house, give away everything you have. What would you do? How much do you want Jesus? How much do you want eternal life? What would you do if you were the man that Jesus said that to You see, Jesus threw the law at him to kill him. You say, preacher, what do you mean he threw the law at him to kill him? My time is over, but I put some passages of Scripture from Romans and Philippians at the bottom of your page. And we'll, we'll, we'll turn to those next week when we come back to this. But let me just say enough to say that if you study those passages of Scripture, you'll find both of them, the Apostle Paul, who was so much like this man. The Apostle Paul, who had all his life, had lived the life of a Pharisee. He had lived a good life. And in those two passages of Scripture, he tells the testimony of his own life. And he said, I was alive without the law once. I thought I was good. I was alive spiritually. I thought I had everything worked out. But then the law came and I died. He said, the law slew me. He used the word slew me. The law slew me. The law was like a sword that stabbed me in the abdomen and destroyed me. He said, until I read the law, I thought I was good. I thought I just, you know, maybe you just need to tweak this, tweak that. But then the law came and the law slew me. He told the church at Philippi in the Philippians passage that he had he he listed he enumerated all of his goodness the good life that he lived and he said man he says I had it together this is how I lived my life and, and then he said but then but then he had to come to the point where that law slew him and he said I took all of my religion and all of my goodness and I counted it all as just manure and I discarded it my religion my efforts my church, I I discarded it all, that I might gain Christ. You see, the reason Jesus didn't throw grace at him when he said, what must I do? What lack I yet? What do I need to add to all that I've done? This man is still very much alive in his own self-goodness. And grace means nothing to the person that's just trying to tweak their life. Grace means nothing to the person that just needs to get one little adjustment here. Grace is only valuable to the person who has been slain by the law of God. You are going to hell. You are a sinner. You are a breaker of the law. You are the enemy of God. You have no hope in religion and in your self-righteousness. And when the law breaks me, Romans 3 says it makes me guilty before God and shuts up my mouth so I have nothing good to say about myself, nothing to bargain with, nothing to say, God, but, you know, I, there's nothing there. My mouth is shut up by the Ten Commandments. And I fall to the ground guilty, condemned. And that's when grace comes into the picture to save a soul. This seeker was an honest seeker on his terms with the Jesus he wanted to create. Who could be a good life coach and tweak his life so he could have everything at peace in his heart. And Jesus Christ wouldn't give him grace. When the man walked away sorrowful because he was a rebel against the 10th commandment, Thou shalt not covet, money had his heart. Things had his heart. And there was no way he could see himself as a lawbreaker, guilty before God. And he walked away sorrowful because he was very rich. And Jesus didn't run after him and say, oh, oh no, let me just, just, just pray this prayer. Jesus didn't make it easier. He didn't chase him down. Because until the law kills him, grace cannot save him. Wow. Well, the story takes some interesting twists from there. We'll look at it, Lord willing, next time.